Welcome to the WP Tonic Podcast, brought to you by WPTonic.com, a WordPress maintenance and support service for business owners. We talk to the leaders in WordPress, business, and online marketing communities, bringing you insights on how to grow your business and achieve success. Welcome back, folks, to the WP Tonic Roundtable Show. This is episode 316. We record this live every Friday at 8.30 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. And um, we're recording this on August the 3rd, 2018. If you want to join us live and watch the show, um, go to the WP Tonic um, Facebook page and you'll be able to comment and um, about what we're talking about. Um so I'm going to let the panel quickly introduce themselves. Um, Spencer, would you like to introduce yourself? My pleasure. Spencer Foreman from WPLaunchify.com, and we help people understand marketing automation for WordPress. And Chris, would you like to quickly introduce yourself? I'm Chris Badgett from Lifter LMS, and we help people build courses and membership sites uh, with Lifter. I also have a podcast for course creators called LMS Cast. Great podcast. Um, Sally, would you like to quickly introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Sally Getch. <clears throat> I build custom Genesis sites uh, that are aimed to be uh, profitable and a pleasure to use. And I'm the organizer of the East Bay WordPress meetup in Oakland, California. It's a great and meetup. Behind, yeah. my, behind my head is uh, the real star of the show, my cat, BC. Fascinating cat. Um, John, would you like to introduce yourself? My name is John Locke. My business is Lockdown Design and SEO, and we help manufacturing and industrial firms with SEO and other web needs. That's great. And Morton, would you like to introduce yourself? Hello, I'm Morton, Senior Staff Instructor at LinkedIn Learning, and I have opinions. Great. That's why you're on the show. Uh, Rob, I'm the founder of WP Tonic. We're a support maintenance company that has emphasis on membership and learning management systems. So we go straight into the stories. Um, So um, the first story is um, easy digital downloads substantially reduces prices for exchanging passes. And that's Pippin Williamson. Um, He had to post something on his site. I'm going to start with Chris. Um, What... What did you think of this announcement and how Pippin handled it? I really admire what he did. Uh, I think it is important to test pricing. And a lot of people have a lot of opinions around pricing. But really, if you're trying to figure out how to price your product, contact with reality and with the open market is really the best way to test. There's a lot of ideas out there about what you should charge, how you should charge, how you do subscriptions. But uh, it's different for every product. It's different for every market. There are some best practices out there um, that that you can use as a rule of thumb, but I think it's important to split test. And I think he just had a very public split test there. I also admire once he made his decision, he got behind it 100% and grandfathered in people who paid the higher price in the back. But in my experience, when it comes to selling and pricing, the buyer's perspective it's you know most of how they buy is uh has nothing to do with a rational mind so like asking a, the target market how much do you think i should charge how much mm-hmm. would you pay for this i don't see those as valuable exercises 
And there's a lot of statements out there in the entrepreneurship community or in the WordPress community that just quite frankly aren't carte blanche statements that can apply across the board. For example, um, we have a $1,000 bundle, 999 at Lyft LMS. It sells. People told me you can never sell WordPress products at that price point. We also have a monthly payment option for that that we've been testing over the past four months for $99 a month. People said that um, you can't charge monthly for WordPress products. And both of those were ended up not being... Um, uh, we ended up going against what they said wasn't possible or what I've heard some people say is not possible and it works. So I admire what he's done and I, I really appreciate his candor and just transparency and sharing that learning with the community. Well, what did you think, Spencer? I, I mean, I have a slightly different take on this, but... Well, I could tell you, you by your body language. I'm, I'm like... That, that's okay. why he called on you. First of all, I'm going to condition a. <laughs> uh, I'm a great Pippen, observer. Body Pippen, language. Pippin is a, a a rare individual in this space that, since his earliest days, has been uh, let's put let's put it like this: a person who says as he does, and vice versa, and also a quite likable person because he doesn't come at it um, maybe like a guy like me would be, which is he's not all markety, markety, salesy, pitchy, and whatever. And so I think for that reason and because of his great capabilities in building the product and really trying to learn, I think he's entitled to a pass on any of his mistakes, especially when he makes a public mea culpa. Having said that, on the particular issue of just the ecosystem of plugins in general and what they're worth, Chris and I were talking about, uh, Chris here today and I were talking about it earlier, that I think things are starting to evolve. And we all remember and have learned from when, you know, WooCommerce changed their pricing model and blew that whole thing up. That created the whole ecosystem of nulled plugins and blah, blah, blah. But if it's true in the sense of GPL that what they're delivering for single price or past prices is updates and support, I think it should just be acknowledged in future considerations of pricing. Do these people really still take any support from you anymore because I think we've reached a point in the ecosystem that there are so many capable people and or consultants that I don't, I can't remember the last time I ever would contact a plugin author for support. I get my support. I can. From, well, okay. I mean, I'm not saying it's impossible, but I'm simply saying if you look at the ecosystem of the stuff that goes into a membership site and you're debating WooCommerce versus EDD or something, none of the decision-making process really is, huh, I'm going to weigh down their ticket system to get help. Usually it's on the, you know, esoteric stuff where it's broken or they released a bad update. So all I'm saying, my spin on this article is simply maybe there should be another choice, which is for people who don't ever want to call us for support, but still want the automatic updates. How about you give us a price for that? Because I think that is a valuable service, having automatic updates right from the source. Maybe that would eliminate the things he's referred to in previous articles about how much time it takes to support people who, you know, drive you around the bend. Um, Here's our idea. Yeah, what do you think, Morton? Pricing is super hard. I mean, figuring out, balancing what your time and your product is worth with what people would gain from it is really hard, especially in a community where people generally don't want to pay for anything ever. Um, I, it's, it's funny because I very rarely build websites anymore, right? I very rarely do client work. I uphold my, um, 
easy digital downloads license. I uphold my um, uh, uh, Gravity Forms license and my WP Migrate license and a whole bunch of other licenses, even though I don't even use them anymore, simply because I want to contribute to the people who built them. I think it's important. Um, that said, it is hard in our community to understand what you're paying for. Because there's this, like, some places they give away something and then other things. And then you're like, but I can just copy this from one site to another. Why do I have to have this license thing? And if I just update this site, I can just copy the code over here and put it over here. So there's this uh, tricky space of communication that needs to happen, right? And then on top of that, if you then say, no, you're, you're going to have to pay this annual fee and it's going to go up or be something. It, it's just hard to understand. And people have a tendency of nitpicking what they want. So I understand. I understand from an end-user perspective why people balked at this new pricing model. And I understand from Pippin's perspective why he tried to do it. Um, what I think is interesting is he landed on that default that everyone lands on right now, which is $99. And it seems like $99 is like a passable price for things. It's like if you just charge $99 for people, like, yeah, whatever, it's $99. I'm sure if you charge $101, people would be like, what? Outrageous. I would never pay $101. And you're like, sorry, I meant $99. And I'm like, yeah, that's fine. That's not a problem. So it seems like a lot of companies, not just in our space, but in general, that price things end up at $99 for their baseline because that is somehow the acceptable value to buy things right now. I don't know. It's just weird. I don't it, like the price things because it's super hard. It's the top of two digits, 99 or 97. is Once you go to 100, psychologically, people go. Yeah, but I'm in Canada. So your $99 is like 117 or something like that, right? But it, and it's crazy how you're like, oh, it's $99. Click, wait a second. It's 117. I'm not buying this crap now. Uh, dear. Uh, John, what did you think? So the way I understand it is uh, EDD, they have these bundles, you know, and maybe WooCommerce should do something like this where they have bundles of uh, different plugins. Um, so the, I think a lot of this has to do with the way that people shop. I, I know a lot of people, the way that they uh, shop for plugins, and especially when it comes to things like WooCommerce or EDD or, you know, memberships or e-commerce, they're going to pick what they need. And what they did is they, they changed the pricing on some of these bundles, maybe to be able to provide better support uh, for these. But a, a lot of people uh, didn't uh, buy or see the value maybe initially in this. And so they made some price adjustments. Uh, echoing what other people said, I think Pippin is a man of great integrity. He's a good business person. He seems like a genuinely good person. Uh, I think maybe in a couple of years, like this could be revisited. Uh, if you show people the value that are in the different passes and maybe get them to change the way that they purchase, you know, that, that's maybe something that they are looking at. What did you think, Sally? Well, 
you know, I remember a long time ago when I, I first became self-employed, sort of asking somebody about how much to charge. And, and they said, you know, what the market will bear. And I said, but how do you know what the market will bear? And, and you, you know, you do kind of have to try it. And the, the thing is, you know, when WooCommerce changed its pricing most recently, there was a lot of flap and complaint and whine, whine, whine. Um, but I don't no, know. Blue press, never. Yes, I don't know that sales dropped off dramatically. I mean, the thing is, there were null WooCommerce plugins and nulled all kinds of other plugins and themes and whatever going around anyway, because people will pirate anything. Uh, and, and, you know, there are a lot of folks out there on Team Free Shit. Um, but, you know, uh, uh, <clears throat> clearly uh, it was, uh, it did not cause enough uh, problems on the bottom line for WooCommerce to choose to to reverse that decision. and. If what was happening was that Pippin was seeing that nobody is buying this thing that that we're offering, uh, then that requires a, a revisiting. If his uh, customers had complained but forked out the money, I- I'm pretty sure he would have stuck with it because the complaints eventually go away. Uh, yeah, I was having a I was having a chat with John um, yesterday and. I, I just think it's a sign of the reality of the marketplace. We've got to be realistic here. For about six to almost eight years, WordPress was really the only fundamental solution if you were a certain type of user, entrepreneur, individual that was trying to build something on the web compared to some of the other CRM solutions. And that landscape has fundamentally changed over the past two to three years. There's multiple competitors um, to WordPress that are offering high-quality solutions. And it doesn't mean it's the end of WordPress. It just, um, you know, I'm not one of these gloom and doom merchants either. But the reality is the marketplace compared to about three or four years ago is dramatically changed. And um, I think what you're seeing here with this announcement is a recognition of that reality. What do you reckon, Spencer? Was that just I, I mean, I think that's that's the obvious answer for all of these situations that we come across. <laughs> you were joking about it, but I laughed because like there has never been a more bitchy community of really nice people, but wow, bitchy people than in WordPress. I mean. Oh my God! I just built. No, this. no, you you haven't met vapors. Yeah, well, okay. I mean, in the in the last decade of like, they're on the cloud. I, don't know why, I, I would think, depending on what they're vaping, they would be pretty chill. But nicotine. Okay, so um, like, if if you were saying like what people bitch, like if you suggested today all of our plugins are going to be ten cents. Uh, Morton alluded to this. I'm sure they would figure out a way to go, oh, 10 cents, really? It couldn't have been nine cents. So you just got to do what you do. But the reality still comes down to whether it's today or tomorrow, eventually the thing we have with these, I mean, because I just find it just doesn't fit, of every single plugin has got that like significant price. And the WooCommerce market is the worst for this. Like literally, this thing does one thing and they're charging $129. Well, you've just made it easy for me, like uh, using a Game of Thrones metaphor, to become a null club user. Because whether you like it or not, to get into the whole discussion or not, 
if I have a client and I have to tell them that I need a hundred bucks off of them to install a plugin that does one thing, they kind of balk at me and I look like a, a schmo. I'd rather just go get the plugin and use it for free and not have to tell anybody where I got it from because I'm entitled under the GPL, regardless of thing. So I think it's smart for them to acknowledge and whatever comes in the future, who knows, but I don't see it being possible for a world to exist where WordPress plugins are sold a la carte for tens of dollars each. I think it's only going to work out like Gravity Forms, for example. Their developer license, I think, is lately 200 and something dollars for the high end. I have the, like, more than probably the old school. It was 50% off. It was $99 because mm-hmm. I've had it since, like, it was invented, right? And I keep paying it because, hey, they got to stay alive. But there's no way... I could tell a client that like Gravity Forms is better than Contact Form 7 for basic things if they got a shell of 250 bucks. Oh, and no, I disagree. Oh, I, I disagree with you there. That, yeah, that, hello. That's the communication problem that we have, right? Because when, when I build a website for someone, I would never say, so you're paying, you know, for all these things. I would say, here's the, here's the yearly cost of running this site. This yearly cost includes a bunch of feature plugins that you need to have. It re- includes your font licenses and all this other like security licenses and monitoring and everything. These are just your running costs for the website. Non-negotiable, that's what it is. And if you look at it compared to what you pay for your phone in your office or anything like that, it's not that much money. That's all about the framing of the story. If you go in and say, oh, we're going to buy this thing, but there's this other thing that's free, of course, they're going to be no, like... No, but, but I'm referring... To, I should clarify because your point is well taken. I'm referring to not a situation where I deliver because all of the times when we actually deliver something, we have the developer license. So we don't tell anybody anything. They're with us or not. We have our license or not. I'm talking about when I teach people who want right. to become sufficient at being consultants, for example, in the marketing automation space. We teach, use Gravity Forms, and we say that 247 bucks will pay for itself. But they've got to justify that for their mm-hmm. clients because they have to know what to say. So we tell them, do what you just suggested, what we do. Get the developer license and be done with it. But when you look through the other plugins that are not as significant, the ones that are one-trick ponies, it becomes very difficult to justify. Like, I'm going to get a developer license for every single extension. So I have this library of, you know, even if I'm using it on 100 clients or 100 course buyers, I just feel like fundamentally this is like going to gumball machine and, you know, every single thing I got to put in a quarter and get a gumball on. It's like, for God's well, sake. you know, if you have, <laughs> if, you're, if, you're, if you have one client that needs something and particularly if it's something where, you know, they don't have a like, you know, use it anywhere developer license, you get the client to buy that license. Yeah. That's and, what we do. We know, tell them to go get it themselves. Right. And, and I've, I've had a, a few situations. I had a situation recently where, you know, the client was starting to want landing pages. And I said, okay, you know, we should get a license for Beaver Builder, you know, and it's however much it was, a hundred bucks, whatever. And the client kind of balked at, you know, paying for a, a, another plugin. And I said, you pay me $150 an hour. Mm-hmm. If that saves, you know, if using this plugin saves even one hour of my time in building these things for you, uh, it's going to be worth it. Uh, and, and she was kind of like, oh, yeah. And, and you know, no, no issue. And, you know, she was very happy with the landing pages. So it, it works out. But I, I think people object before they think about it. But it does come back to can you demonstrate value? And, you know, is this thing that you're spending money on going to make you money or save you money? 
uh, in a way that that makes it a, a worthwhile investment. Yeah, it would seem, it, it seem if you took the whole idea, I mean, we all seem on the same page, but I go back to my first opinion, which is as a developer who feels comfortable enough finding all the answers without ever have, having getting direct support, unless there's a, you know, there have been bugs when updates have been released and I'm just like, hey, high five, this is broken. I would rather pay a bulk developer plan, if you will, for any of the key plugins like we've been talking about, but at a price that's representative of, for the things we got it in the early days, because I'm never going to bother you for support and I'm going to use this on my clients. But as a result of that, maybe those clients will end up buying your license directly later if they you know, ever leave me or whatever the case is. I just think that the pricing model has to reflect the reality of our world. It's not everything can be bought a la carte without some kind of resistance of where else can I get it? I was saying Game of Thrones because there was a whole talk about why that market and Netflix and HBO and all that has changed. It's because they made it so gosh darn hard for those Game of Thrones people to get the new episodes and bulk watch them that everybody just went to torrents and downloaded it. They're like, please, we'll pay you if we could just get it. And it took years until they finally woke up and realized, actually, that's the model we should use. It's like, let's release all of our shows as, you know, Get them now. Isn't that how? Isn't that how the um, some of the hosts are doing now? They're they're right. selling hosting plus a bunch of plugin licenses. Exactly. I think you that's get it all. Where it's going to go? Right. Oh, I think Chris has left us. Uh, I think he got so fed up with this. He said he had well, yes, he, he he claims to have a meeting, but I don't know. We we could just be boring him. Yeah, I, think, I think he had enough of it, Spencer. You attacking him, so. making okay, a living. I'm, I think he had enough. Today, I think he. I think he had enough of it. Uh, um. I think we're going to have to speak to him afterwards. No, I think he can handle himself, actually, Spencer. I think he's quite, he's a big guy. Uh, You know, he's been in Alaska, kind of spent life with wolves. You know, there we go. I think we're going to go for a break, folks, and we'll be back in a few moments. Do you want to spend more time making money online? Then use WP Tonic as your trusted WordPress developer partner. They will keep your WordPress website secure and up-to-date so you can concentrate on the things that make you money. Examples of WP Tonic's client services are landing pages, page layouts, widgets, updates, and modifications. WP Tonic is well-known and trusted in the WordPress community. They stand behind their work with full, no-question-asked, 30-day money-back guarantee. So don't delay. Sign up with WP Tonic today. That's wp-tonic.com. Just like the podcast. We're coming back. We've had a, a, a really great initial discussion. Our one topic is always took 25 minutes up. Uh, um, but before we go on to the other um, topics of this show, I want to talk about one of my sponsors, and that's WP Fusion. And if you've got a membership site, you've got a learning management um, system-powered website, if you've got an e-commerce website, and you really want to integrate Powered by WordPress, and you really want to integrate that with your CRM system, like um, there's a number of them out there, um, like Drip and other ones, um, you really need to get WP Fusion because it puts that, those two hubs of your business, your word, your website powered by WordPress and your CRM, it puts those both and allows them to communicate together on steroids, basically. So I could go on forever about WP, 
WP Fusion, but you need to go to the website, learn how it can really help integrate with these two important parts of your business. Um, and the great news is the they have given us an exclusive offer. If you go to the, the website, learn about it, and then decide to buy one of the packages by using WP Tonic, all one word, uppercase, you will get 25% off. And that's a fantastic deal. So on to the next. Um, can, can I just say it's fascinating that we all want to put like our businesses on steroids, even though we think about steroid use as a bad thing. <laughs> we'll talk well, about yourself. I'll be have you not regularly. seen famous musicians lately? All the male <laughs> versions of them, they're all enormous. Steroids are only bad if you are an athlete. If you're uh, something else, it's apparently a good thing. You know, when people start having necks that look like this, that's generally a good sign of non-natural work. It was all done naturally, yeah. wasn't it? Wasn't, yes. Do a lot of this, this kind of weightlifting. <laughs> <laughs> you have a good point, though, Sally. Yeah, I've got a good point. I'm just making a totally... <laughs> Ridiculous. Oh, I'll find a different word next time. Uh, um, oh, it's, uh, it's not just you. It's universal. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, All these rock star ninja designers who are on steroids with their business. It's uh, very yeah, confusing. Well, on to the next story. Um, Whistleblower reveals Google plans to censor search in China. What did you think of this one, Morton? Shocking. Shocking. <laughs> I mean, I'm stunned. I'm stunned, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm shocked to find gambling in this establishment. Is 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 this what you're saying? How, how <laughs> like it's funny how this is being reported. It's like, oh my god, I can't believe this is happening. It's like this is not news. <laughs> They've been trying to figure this out for years. Uh, it's um, like not to say that it isn't news. I mean, the fact that these uh, large tech companies are still doing dumb stuff like that is. Uh, Highly problematic. What do you think he's uh, done? They're going to make a ton of money on it. Yeah, well, there are other parts of that conversation than money. That's the problem, right? Uh, I mean, they, that, they is the, a, that is the only that controls so, any of this, doesn't it? Okay, so so let's be apolitical about this, right? They set a very dangerous precedent for other countries by doing this because they're basically saying it's okay for one country to decide what is good and what is bad about searches. Therefore, any other country can come and say, well, we want the same thing that you did. For example, Turkey can come and say, we want Google, but we only want to filter search results. Russia can come and say, we only want Google, but we want filtered search results. Trump can come and say, we only want Google. No, we want Google, but only filtered search results, right? So this is the kind of behavior that these kinds of companies cannot display because once they've done it once, they've set a precedence for everyone, for themselves and for everyone else to do it. And they make it impossible for anyone to argue, anyone within the company to argue, no, 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 that was a one-time one thing. It's not a one-time thing. You built the entire infrastructure to make this possible. Other people will want to have the same thing. So it's unilaterally bad. And I don't think that this is going to benefit um, the stockholders either because it's going to cause a major backlash. Now, if we look at it from a why would Google want to do this perspective and you ignore the search part, I'm fairly certain this is, as actually has more to do with pushing their cloud product into China than it has to do with search because there's a, like, you know, everyone is trying to get the cloud market. You have 
three or four major uh, actors right now. Google wants to be one of those major actors. And China is a very large market. So if you can get in there, then you can you know, sell all the other products as well. So it's a multifaceted story. But to, I'm disappointed that they do this. They shouldn't be doing this. No company should be doing this. Like you should not allow an authoritarian regime to control any type of content that way. Uh, so, but I'm not surprised. What do you reckon, John? Yeah, definitely. Um, when you make all of your ethical decisions based on what the stock price is going to be next quarter and you have no other uh, value inputs or decision inputs into that, this is what you get. Now, they did operate in China from 2006 to 2010, and they received a lot of backlash here in the U.S. Now, maybe they sense that the wind is blowing a different direction now. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe they wouldn't get a lot of uh, backlash like they did in the past. But bottom line, uh, if you're looking for the reason why people do things 999 times out of 1,000, the answer is going to be money. So, I mean, just because uh, Silicon Valley, let's face it, a lot of the stuff that comes out of the tech sector is unregulated. Uh, There's no guidelines. And because a lot of the the GDP growth here in the United States is from Silicon Valley, they're not going to regulate it. So, um, yeah, I just wanted to interrupt before I throw I move it to some of the other panelists. What's fascinated me over the past, because past few months or the past year almost, definitely the past six months, is the tone about technology and about some of the leading plays in it seems to have dramatically shifted to a tone that to me was very naive and very optimistic and all of a sudden, the pendulum seems to have moved right over almost to the other side where almost every week, um, and like I said, I've said to the other panelists, um, that, you know, this is about a show about WordPress, about web development, the web, business, those issues. I don't want it to become a political show. But we have had to discuss this because the the pendulum has seemed to have swung right over to the other side where almost every story every week is a really negative one. What do you reckon, Spencer? The What decision that Google makes in China is going to have no effect immediately on American people or uh, outside of China people, but it has a huge effect on whether or not you believe that they're doing that kind of stuff to us without telling us. That's where the problem comes in. So in other words, like I read a very interesting article about how even though the standard of living and other things have improved in China, that they have a system because it's this sort of mix of the old communist with the new capitalist that if somebody gets, let's say, a bad credit score or whatever, that they get publicly blackballed from their social world and their community and they, like their life effectively is irreversibly changed over something as inconsequential as like a 10-point drop. With this kind of thing of them controlling search engines, I mean, it's amazing they can even allow search engines at all. But what I'm concerned about is 
it seems that a company whose whole motto was do no evil is now doing evil in public with a company that's, you know, got an interesting political stance. And with whatever our politics are here, you can see very quickly, like, I wonder what real arrangement is going on with Google right now about my search results or what is it that's going on with that stuff? And I think that's not a huge concern because most of us right now just assume when you type in stuff that they're tracking it. But it definitely makes me feel differently if in the future it swings even farther. And I would say like, what, why use this search engine? There's other search engines that maybe are, you know, smaller owned companies and other things. But bigger is I just say like, this really makes me feel badly about that brand in general. Even though I use a billion Google things, I'm like, how dumb can you guys be about what that makes people say about your character as a company? I mean, why do they even need to do it? Sure, it's 20% of the market in the world, but like, but they're not making enough money doing other stuff. I mean, work on the flying cars and stuff, the Kitty Hawk or something. But Can, I, can I interject here? There, there's two pieces to that. Uh, they abandoned Don't Be Evil, uh, but Alphabet, the super, like the uh, umbrella company that holds, among other things, Google, have a motto that is do the right thing. Just do, do lots of evil. That's, and I forget the other part. So do the right thing for the shareholders. I find yeah. myself torn because as a capitalist, but a non-corporate participant by choice for the most part, you know, being an entrepreneur and being a corporate political person are two different brains. I find it always offensive how stupid some corporate decision-making can be. I was alluding to the GoPro story the other day, like, the, uh, you know, that entrepreneur was awesome. And then they got to this point somewhere in the middle where the whole thing got hijacked by stupidity and the company fell off the shelf. This is not an unusual story, but for a company that has such a big scope like Google to, to just use excuses and sort of secondary company names to justify, basically what we're saying is we're going to make stuff happen that we're not telling you about, even though this is the thing that you said, you know, we're going to trust each other on, which is search results. Uh, why would I want to invest in the future at an extreme level? and advertising um, my site or trying to do SEO to get to the top of page one when I don't even know if you're really returning legitimate results anymore anyway. Maybe half yeah, of that, people, That's a really great point, actually. Maybe half of the people I'm trying to get to, you're really not going to show my stuff to anyway. Yeah, that's great. That, 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 if this is a, that, thanks for that, Spencer. That's, that was a very insightful thing you just said because... I'll drink water to that. Not in practical, you know, in moralistic, in practical, cold business terms. I don't think that was a great decision they've just done for the reason you've just pointed out. What do you reckon, Sally? I I think Spencer is right about the the loss of public trust and that, you know, Morton said some very good things and I don't know that I have a a lot to add to it, but, you know, it will will be interesting to see how this plays out Mm -hmm. in terms of, do people do anything differently in, in response? You know, do they start to lose money because people are hesitant to advertise or does it basically just keep going the way it's been going because Google has the lock on the market and, you know, we'll, we'll see. You know, there was protest before, but it may be that, yeah, there there will not be enough negative reaction now to, to stop it happening. And, uh, you know, it's, it is a terrible precedent, um, but I, I think we kind of have to see what's going to actually happen here. 
Right, on to the next story. Wait, 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 wait. Uh, I, I remember what I was going to say. Sorry. Oh, I, have good, to, I have to get this. Yeah, sure. Up. So, uh, Spencer said something really important. That is that people know that Google is filtering their search results. Most people don't understand no. that Google is filtering their search results. Um, Wired magazine had this great article about how journalists need to stop covering uh, memes the way they do because what's happening is some meme troll somewhere makes a meme and then gets a ton of people and a ton of sock puppet accounts and a ton of bots to retweet those memes. And then journalists talk about those memes. And then people go on to search engines and start looking for it. They're like, oh, what is this? This sounds interesting. And then they search for it. And because of how these search engines filter results, they then get dragged into echo chambers and their entire behavior gets changed. The vast majority of internet users do not understand that that's happening at all. And that means if and when Google starts filtering content based on political ideology, which will eventually happen because of what they've done here, people will just trust blindly these search results because they think that the Google search results are based on, you know, curated content and what other people are seeing and everything. They're not understanding that, no, this is highly filtered based on a bunch of algorithms that are completely um, non-transparent and impossible. I, I saw it on the internet, so it must be true. Yeah. And I mean, I, I've, I don't know if I told this story before, but um, I encountered a guy who's a flat earther and he described hmm. to me how he became a flat earther. And basically the entire story was someone told him to go look for a specific piece of content on YouTube. And once he had done that, the entire Google system just directed him into this bl black hole of flat earth theory to the point where he was convinced that the entire thing is real and everything he goes online to see tells him that it's real. And I sat him down. I was like, here, look at my phone. Do the same search results on my phone and you'll see that I get none of these results. Like all this crazy stuff that you're being exposed to is not real. It's something that an algorithm thinks you want, right? That, and it, even then he was like, no, 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 it's a conspiracy. You're being manipulated, not me. <laughs> there we go. There we are. On to the next story. Oh my God, and I'll choose this. Uh, why? UX, UI, CX, IA, IXD, and other sorts of design terms. I've, I've put the word terms into the title. The design are dumb. The reason why I chose that because Shane from Fry Themes did a video, and I've always got a lot of time for Shane because um, he's a great marketer and just a really intelligent guy. And um, he, said, he said this was a great article and he explained, um, you know, basically we all say niche, you know, find a niche, blah, blah, blah. And I do believe in it. But I think sometimes, especially in the design area, you can take it a bit far. What do you reckon, Sally? I, I think that's probably true. I mean, the, the point of the article is that, you know, First, you do need both breadth and depth, uh, which is amusingly illustrated in a, a not safe for work fashion that I encourage everyone to uh, to go read. But also that, um, you know, the inside baseball stuff, the titles that are meaningful within your discipline in terms of what you do, um, you know, if you deal directly with clients, they don't care about that, you know. And that if you try to explain, as the author says here, I remember a time when I tried to enlighten clients and rolled my eyes at them when they confused design 
terminology. Now I know for sure who created so-called clients from hell, designers from hell, such as me, years ago. We're in the trapping pit we've dug. <clears throat> and uh, that, you know, what the client needs to know is how what you do brings value to them. Is You know, how is this going to help their uh, business? What, what is the, you know, what is the ROI of, of design? And, you know, that's just as true, you know, not merely for designers as for pretty much anybody. I mean, I know a whole bunch of, of people out in the, um, uh, you know, back when that like, you know, web 2.0, you know, became a thing and, uh, you know, people who had all kinds of, uh, you know, crazy job titles for themselves in, in their startups. And it's like, okay, that that's fun for you, but it's absolutely meaningless uh, to, to the people you know, you're, you're actually uh, working for. And uh, so, you know, we may specialize to a, to a very great uh, degree in the, in the design industry. And um, I, I think that's more or less okay. But if, if we're dealing directly with a, with a client, we need to be able to, un, to explain what we do uh, in a way that, it makes sense to them and and matters. Yeah, before I'm going to put this to Spence quick, but before I just want to put this to Spence. The, the, you know, obviously, I think it's driven by market forces. This, um, and first of all, I want to see if you agree with me. This um, explosion in um, I'm a UX designer, so basically, I can increase my rate by fifty dollars an hour because I specialize in that particular area. But obviously, you know, but on the other thing, uh, you know, finding a niche is a good idea in a very um, commodified economy, especially online. So in some ways, I can see why people do it. But where's the balance between um, being a generalist and being a, a very, having a title that really doesn't mean much? Skills are essential calling a title or adding a title to what skills you have only matters if you're trying to impress somebody whose job is in HR to hire you to plug you into, uh, you know, as a round plug into a round hole. So for example, if I went to a restaurant and they had a menu of stuff and I asked, can the chef make this thing? I'm pretty sure the chef can make this thing, you know, if they have the ingredients because they're a chef, they have the skills, they have like an infinite variety of talents. If the person who is the chef was trying to get hired, maybe the person trying to employ them would be like, do you know how to make round pancakes and crispy bacon? Yes. Can you squeeze an orange? That's the difference. It's like, then I have a crispy bacon title and an orange juice squeezer title. Who cares? If you know various skills with all the, you know, we talked about this the other week, like all the cool new technologies. Wow, I'm a Node.js specialist and I know blankety blank and blankety blank. Nobody cares except for when you're a kind of person hiring for a job. Your client or the end user just cares, could you use those tools to figure out how to use them to deliver my breakfast? And that's where it ends. So this whole thing with titles to me is funny because it only applies to a subset of people who are job applicants or who have friends that know what those things mean. Nobody else, if I said I'm a UX person, they would be like, oh, are you getting treated for that? What do you reckon, Bolton? It is funny because this is, I, I kind of land on the other side of this. The, yeah. I knew you were going to say that. So, 
So first of all, titles actually do matter to a great extent. How we communicate those titles to other people is a problem, but that's a whole separate conversation. So uh, for instance, I teach interaction design, that's IXD in, uh, at a university, which is fundamentally different from UX or UI or anything else. Right. And it is an actual definition that this is like if you are an interaction designer, you have a certain set of skills. And if you are a UX designer, you have a certain set of skills. And that goes beyond I've read a book about this to I actually have some educational base on this or I've worked in this field for a very long time. However, if you go to a client and say, I'm an interaction designer, you've started that conversation wrong. What you do is exactly what it says at the bottom of that article. You start by saying what you can contribute to them. Uh, what kind of value you bring to the table and why that matters to the end user, right? The interesting thing about this is this drive towards um, declaring, speci- uh, declaring specificity in what we do is actually not something that is just present in our community. Um, if you look generally at society, you'll notice that people are very focused on this having specialized tools for specialized jobs. Just go to a kitchen store and look at how they're, they're now like, individual pans for things that you would never see in a professional kitchen, right? You, professional kitchens don't have pans just for eggs, for instance. They have general steel, like, um, what do you call it? Like cast iron pans that they use for everything, right? Um, and when you, when you talk to people who interact with the medical profession, for instance, they, they no longer say, I went to the doctor and the doctor sent me to a specialist. They go like, I went to the doctor and the doctor sent me to an endocrinology, right? And they're very focused on this titling thing. So this is a societal phenomenon of, of us wanting to, um, seeing value in this specification and specialization. Um, and you, you see it in everything. It's like... Um, uh, I have a friend who took an, a, a PhD and he tried to explain to me what a PhD was. So he drew this curve. So he said, okay, so, you know, generally people know this much. So they are, they're completely flat, right? They know a bunch of stuff about very little. No, they know very little about a bunch of stuff. And then you have people who take like a university degree in something. They get basically a mound onto that thing. Whereas like in a specialized environment, they know a lot about a certain thing. So you get like this bell curve thing and then you get a PhD and the PhD has a bell curve. And then at the top, there's this straight line that goes straight up. That is like this hyper specialization on something. And then you go to LinkedIn or anywhere else and you see how many people list their name as, you know, Frank Underwood, PhD, right? And people are like, oh, he has a PhD. That must be, you know, that makes him more valuable. <laughs> and then you know, okay, so what do you have a PhD in? I have a PhD in like uh, um, Irish immigration to Germany between the, the years 1984 and 1985, right? Those, <laughs> like the title PhD tells people something, but, or people think it tells them something, but it actually doesn't. And it's not because... Uh, the person who came up, like who put that title on their name wanted to say something. It's simply because we as a society have become obsessed with names for everything. So our challenge is to, first of all, know what we know and what we don't know, which is what these names are for. Like if you call yourself a UX designer, you are saying you have a certain set of skills. If you call yourself an interaction designer, you're saying you have a certain set of skills and people should be able to test you on those and make sure that you actually know them. But when you deal with real people, using those titles means nothing. And when we start using those titles just as kind of badges, we're doing everyone a disservice, including ourselves, because we're muddying the waters. 
And that's kind of what this article ends up with is that the titles matter, but the way we're using them makes people confused about why they matter. And that water, that, you know, waters out the whole thing and makes it harder for people to come into the industry. Right. Um, I'm going to put it to John now, but just before that, John, I'm kind of really struggling here because um, part of me goes with what Spence says and part of me goes with what Morton's just said. So, so where's the middle ground, John? The specialized titles are for people who are inside the industry. Uh, if you're trying to define like what you do specifically, these titles will make sense to other people who do web design. They make no little to no sense to the clients on the outside. I love the illustrations and the uh, images in this post. They really tell the story uh, right there. The clients, basically, all this is just more jargon to them. These things make a lot of sense to people within the industry because web design has grown. Um, and it's it, it, 20 years ago, it barely existed. And now you have these specialized roles. And so it is important to you know, show what you do within the context of a job. But uh, like I said, I mean, what you call yourself what you do, there's many different spectrums of skills that people have and, you know, what they do. Call yourself like what you want to call yourself, what you want to be hired for, but just realize that to clients, you're just, you know, a web designer, so. Right, on to the next story. Um, I kind of threw this in because um, Sally kind of put it to my notice and it's from a source that I really admire. And I'm going to put it to John first, actually. Right. But also um, some things that Spence have said uh, about it, kind of um, which I could see where Spence was coming from, but also I disagree to some degree. And it's the future of SEO has never been clearer nor more ignored. Um, and it's from Friskin, a, a great source. What did you reckon about this one to start the conversation on, John? Yeah, definitely. This is on the Spark Toro blog. And there's a lot of things where Rand is pointing out that Google is already becoming basically like instant answers. Uh, during the NBA playoffs, I'd just Google NBA and it'd give me the score of whatever the game was. Uh, if you want the temperature, you just Google temperature and it'll give you the temperature of uh, where you're at. So a lot of these... If you, if you had a site that was basically based around just delivering that sort of basic information, it's already been gobbled up by Google. I actually use Google as a calculator a lot of times. Mm. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. But there's a subtext to this at the bottom, uh, about halfway through this, and, and then again at the bottom, he talks about it. He alludes to it, but he doesn't really spell it out. But what Google is going to do, what they are doing is moving toward favoring things that look like brands. Um, now, they just dropped the, the new quality rater guidelines uh, a couple of days ago. That's definitely something you should check out. Again, it's, it's, you should be building both your, your brand as a company and also as, you know, writers that contribute to your site. They said a few years ago that brands are not the problem of like what to rank. They're the solution. So these small, if you're a smaller company, 
you need to embrace the fact that you're also a media company and publishing information, uh, making sure that you're on social networks and publishing information there. That's what you got to do. These, these are things to build your name. Branded search is the holy grail. You want people to be searching for your brand by name. That's what you need to be doing. So, so what do you reckon about this article, Spencer? I mean, combine this with our talk about China, and I think it's very clear. Uh, to me, Google has evolved into a place you will pay to play and that essentially, if you're not paying them in some way, either through advertising for placement or if you're not just, as John rightly puts up, putting your marketing dollars elsewhere to just put your brand into somebody else's space, you're just delusional to think that anybody will ever find you in an organic search. If you want to do that, you might as well use DuckDuckGo, which is a, a, a great search engine for looking at like normal results. But if you go to Google and compare it to DuckDuckGo, it's even more amazing how different it is. You know, Google is a paid billboard and DuckDuckGo is sort of a legitimate what a search engine is supposed to be. But then again, like the article suggests, Google owns the space. So for anybody who's got a business and they ask me what they should do, I say, forget that Google exists. Make a brand that solves somebody's pain and then go spend all of your time talking to the people who own communities of potential customers Get your brand there. If you have to spend any money at all, do it with the idea of spending money in those communities to get right to your customers directly. And leave the billboard advertising, it's like a Super Bowl ad, leave the billboard advertising that Google has become to the big companies that have huge budgets and want to pay for it. Because most startups, at least my client base, they don't really have that capacity. So why even fight that fight? That's great. Thanks, Spence. What do you reckon, Moulton? <sighs> Haven't we talked about this before? Yeah, well, it was a oh, well, kind of... Yeah, well, yeah. Chasing, but, yeah. chasing Google to try to figure out how Google does things and gaming their system is a lost cause. As several others have said, if you want to rank high on Google, throw money at Google until you rank high. Uh, the only thing that I tell people when they set up a new business is if you have a brick and mortar location, the one thing you have to do is go on Google and claim your Google place so right. that you are physically located, so that your site is tied to a physical location. Because if you have a physical brick and mortar store and you want people to come to it, the only way they'll find it is through Google because that's what everyone does. They just go, hey, Android. I want to add something before I lose you. I apologize. I do apologize for interrupting. Unrelated to branding, my mother, who's a 70-something-year-old, very nice lady who was in retail clothing. And I'm an attorney, by the way. I don't tell anybody that, but you just heard it here first. She got sued because... She allegedly owned and operated a, a major uh, real estate development company without telling anybody in her family because the attorney said when she searched for her mom on Google, it showed her as being the owner of the company on this place. And this exact conversation come up, which is like, apparently the owner of the company never bothered to register their physical yeah. location and something got twisted in Google's system. And now my mom is apparently, uh, you know, a mogul. And yeah. You know. no, 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 no. And, and, and it's. Do I have it to me, do you think, Spencer? 
I, I, I would try to get. I don't think you want that to happen to you. Dude. <laughs> well, I, don't I, want I know a few businesses. America, you, you know, you've got any kind of money, you're going to get sued. Uh, just take but, it with the, you just take it with the territory, really, don't you? But see, see, like you know, we always talk about these black hat SEO people who try to scam the system. So one of the things that's happening now is people are deliberately going into Google and registering, like claiming businesses that are not their own and de-ranking them or putting the wrong business in the wrong place specifically to game the system. And, and they're even doing things like they'll say, if there's like a pizza shop that hasn't claimed their, their location and you don't like them, they'll go in and place the pizza shop like five kilometers away from where it actually is to confuse people so that when they do a Google search, they end up at a different store instead. Yeah. This is an actual thing. Like it's been in the news in Canada for a while now because it's so prevalent in Toronto. Uh, so that's the thing you have to do is go and claim your place, which is currently free still, I think, just to say like, I have this place. And then while you're at it, go do it at all the other things too. Like go do it at Yelp and all these other types of uh, sites because Google indexes those sites and then tries to figure out who's who. But that's as much protection for your own business as it is um, search ranking. Other than that, you just write proper HTML, make sure it's accessible, put good content online, make sure people actually read it and share it. That's, that's it. Stop with all this bullshit. Yeah, I've got to say, even to a higher level that you, then even you have pointed out, um, I know it's on some SEO forums that I will not mention, that I've come to the conclusion there's a whole dark industry at a higher level that's built on um, negative on actually damaging other competitors' SEO ranking. Is there's a whole micro industry based on that that model? It's quite fascinating, and if you read, you start delving into yeah. it. Um, oh, definitely. Cool. I'll, I'll say this: if you're a company that sells stuff online, you have more to fear from a competitor doing strategically timed DDoS attacks on your shopping site, at, say at like Black Friday, than you would from, from spammy links. Yeah, so it's just mind-boggling. What do you reckon, Sally? You're, you're muted. Uh, yes, um, my phone kept ringing. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, Google? Uh, no, not likely, because I'm sure Google would have been more successful. Um, <laughs> You know, I'm not somebody who depends on Google for my business. I try to follow good practice in, in creating my websites. But, you know, a, a random person who finds me on Google is probably not going to be a good prospective client. Um, and, but, you know, I think there is, a, there is a point. Now, I don't know whether the non-click search issue is so much of a problem because, you know, we have voice search coming in and what people do with voice search is, you know, say, what's the weather in, you know, such and so, um, you know, uh, when was this famous actor born? These kinds of things where they, they want a single answer because you can't do a, um, let's see how many uh, restaurants are near this uh, location uh, yet with Alexa at this point because, um, you know, it, it's all aimed at giving you one answer. Um, and so, you know, those are not searches of the type you would ever have been found in uh, anyway. But, you know, nobody is going to say, Alexa, how do I customize the way the events calendar puts out it? It's, uh, you know, it, uh, uh, it, it's archive page. 
because you're not going to sit there and, and listen to that dictated, uh, even if uh, you know, even if they couldn't come up with whose is the best answer to that. Um, and so I think that yes, having you know, producing quality content and and getting in front of getting in front of the right people uh, is a useful and important strategy. Uh, in some cases, though, uh, you know, getting. Uh, you know, going to an in-person networking meeting and and meeting some of those people might be a a better use of your time. It it really kind of depends on whether you want, whether you need mass sales uh, or a a smaller number of sales, whether you're looking for something local or, or, you know, there's there's a whole lot of things that that go into it. But yeah, I think that... um, you know, depending on, uh, you know, it's, it's well, organic search might be help, helpful to you uh, now and again, uh, depending on that for your business uh, has probably been a bad idea for a long time. Yeah, they're great points, Ali. Thanks so much. I, I agree with everything you just said, actually. I'm going to wrap it up now, folks. It's been a great discussion panel. I'm going to start with Spencer. How can people find out more about you online and what you're up to, Spencer? Absolutely. Love to see you visit us over at WPLaunchify.com or email help at WPLaunchify.com. And Sally, how can they find more things about you and what you're up to? I am at Sally Getch on Twitter. Uh, You can find my business at WPFangirl.com and you can find the East Bay WordPress meetup at EastBayWP.com. Yeah, great. And John, how can people find out about what you're up to and what you've been doing recently? Sure thing. You can find me at my website which is LockdownSEO.com. You can also check out my YouTube channel. Just search for Lockdown SEO. I'm putting out new videos each week. That's great. Molten, how can people find out the latest about what you're doing and your, your views? Uh, I am on Twitter, at Morton, because that's my name. And you can also watch my courses on LinkedIn Learning. Uh, WordCamp Vancouver is happening this year in the fall, I believe in September or October, uh, and they are looking for speakers. So if you want to come to our beautiful city, where it's probably going to rain, <laughs> definitely. it's still a beautiful city, uh, you should definitely yeah, I, go apply. I would love to van- go to Vancouver. That is not in my budget. Well, well um, and folks, if you really want to support the show, um, give us a review on iTunes. It really um, does help the show. And also, um, I'd love to get another female panelist on the show. So if you're a, a female with strong views, a passion about WordPress, and um, you, you're... You and and have, a desire to wind Jonathan up as often as possible. I'm, I'm very easy to wind up, to be quite truthful, for somebody my age. But, you know, I, it comes, it goes, Sally, and I just... I go forth, don't I? But if you if you like to join the panel, um, go to the... Um, the foot area where it tells you about the Friday show and it has a form on there and submit and we can have a chat and hopefully you could join the panel. That'd be great. Uh, we'll see you next week. Next week. Next week. Next week. week. Next week where we're hopefully we'll have a similar great quality discussion with some great panelists. We'll see you next week, folks. Bye. 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 Thanks for listening to WP Tonic, the podcast that gives you a spoonful of WordPress medicine twice a week.